Hello, and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering related topics. I'm your host, Sean Falconer, and today I'm joined by Marali Mani, former Chief Compliance and Privacy Officer at GMDX, and we'll be talking about data privacy and healthcare. Marali, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. It's so glad to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited about this. I've been wanting to do sort of more shows focused on this particular topic around healthcare. Well, I'm sure we'll get into lots of different things today, but let's start off with the basics. Who are you and what do you do? So, Sean, I've been in the healthcare uh, industry for a long time. I started in the, on the technical side in, in product development and research and then moved into compliance and privacy. Uh, I've been uh, in uh, medical device companies, uh, in AI technology companies, and most recently in genetic testing companies. Um, and uh, I've built privacy programs from the ground up. I've also worked in very large companies where there's a global privacy program, and I was responsible for, let's say, for North America. So I've seen the large and the small. So and I and I know some of the pain points in both both types of companies. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I feel like there is, you know, clearly like a ton going on in this space right now. Uh, especially, you know, things like, at least uh, in, in, that have been on my radar is like all the work around generative AI and, and drug discovery and some of the innovation that's going on there. And so, you know, it's a lot of really important and potentially impactful work. And, but of course, wherever we're talking about healthcare, drugs, uh, genetics, any of these types of things, you're also going to be end up inevitably kind of talking about, you know, privacy, compliance, regulations, and that's going to be a big part of that conversation. So you talked about, you mentioned the you built privacy programs, you know, from the ground up at some of these organizations. Typically, when does a privacy program start at some of these companies and how does the growth, what's the growth of that organization actually look like? Yeah, so usually uh, if it's a technical company coming up with a technical solution, I'm working with one right now, actually, it's a very small startup. It's, it, they start with a uh, technical tool. It could be an app. It could be a website. They're developing a solution to help certain kinds of customers and they have certain clients. And so they usually start with the technical solution. And then they say, hey, you know, we also need to comply with uh, uh, privacy laws because we are processing personal data. Hey, and let's go find a compliance expert who's going to help us with that. Kind of start there. So usually the technical solution comes first and or the idea or the invention comes first. And then they start to think of, oh, hey, we need to put some seatbelts in here. Uh, what are the regs, you know, and who's going to help us with that? And then does that typically start in-house or are they usually starting with some sort of like a consultant or contractor to help them navigate the regulations to start with as they're sort of just bringing something like that to market? Yeah, and if, if we start talking about very small startups, which is uh, really starting with uh, really the equity of the the people who are starting the company and they have no, uh, uh, you know, outside investors, it's usually they, they go and they typically, and I would use the word in a negative way, but copy what best practice from other companies. They look at privacy notices at similar companies. They start there. Um, and then, uh, and then they um, say, uh, you know, maybe we need to have this double checked. Uh, so they bring in usually a 
consultant because they can't afford a full-time in-house person. They probably can't even afford uh, an attorney. And so they uh, usually usually come in with a consultant. But the, these days, and I will go there later, Sean, but there are certain websites and there are uh, well, portals uh, where you can obtain a lot of the legal material uh, and tailored to your company's needs. Uh, it, it doesn't solve every need, but it, you can start there. Okay. What are some of the like common misconceptions or misunderstandings about data privacy in like the healthcare, health tech world that you often encounter? Yeah. So healthcare is one of those unique areas where if you are providing uh, health services, that's uh, treatment, payment, operations, uh, HIPAA allows you to process the medical data of patients, provided you know you meet the HIPAA security and privacy rule requirements, and and then um, you are not that much bound by state law. Now, if you start off as a health and wellness company where you're not covered by HIPAA, you're not a covered entity, you're not a business associate, then you go into a different regime where the FTC is the one who's regulating you and you are processing personal data, you're, you have to comply with the 50 state laws. And, and that's and sometimes a little bit uh, uh, that companies don't realize that nuance between uh, you know when and who is regulating them. I think that's one of the common misconceptions. How is that um, a distinction made? So essentially, if you're under HIPAA, then you're, you're, you're basically regulated by a different body than if you're not under HIPAA. If you're sort of more in the, uh, uh, I believe you said, medical device uh, space, then you're, you're going to essentially have to comply with the, the, the state-level laws. Is that right? That's correct. So... Um, HIPAA uh, if, is is very clear. So you you usually if you're a covered entity, that's you're providing medical treatments like a medical doctor. Um, it could be um, uh, a lab that's uh, you know testing your your blood. Uh, so these are all covered entities, and they need to follow HIPAA. Then you have uh, payers, uh, insurance providers, uh, who are also covered uh, under HIPAA. Um, because they, they cover the medical claims. And then the last part is our operations. So treatment, payment, and operations, TPO is, is how they usually go. These companies uh, and their business associates uh, and the business associates, uh, second and third and fourth level business, they all need to comply with HIPAA. And then there's a last uh, class of companies called uh, healthcare clearing houses where you know the the data that's transmitted between these entities goes through clearing houses and they also are covered by HIPAA. Now, sometimes it's not clear whether you're covered by HIPAA. Like for example, uh, you're a health and wellness company and uh, you are collecting blood pressure uh, of of uh, the patients who wear have a wearable device that you are deploying. Are you covered by HIPAA? Uh, and this is where it gets to be a little tricky and companies should really, uh, you know, consult with the right professional to make that determination. And, and that's where you, you may start off, like I said, as a health and wellness company is just measuring blood pressure and, uh, and, uh, you know, let's say heart rate, but you're not doing anything with that. You're not making treatment decisions, diagnosis decisions. You're a health and wellness company, so they are not covered by HIPAA. And again, 
those gray areas are areas that, you know, it, I won't go into in, in some detail, but that's where sometimes companies trip up. Yeah. Because even, uh, you know, signing up for a gym membership, they ask you, they're going to ask you certain sort of like, you know, your history of healthcare, or maybe, you know, heart disease, these types of things. So you're kind of like dipping a toe towards something that potentially you might think of as being regulated by HIPAA. That's correct. And you can collect that kind of information. It becomes sensitive data or sensitive personal data. Uh, but if you're not using it for diagnosis, uh, payment, treatment, then you are not a covered entity. And, uh, you know, but, but what could end up happening, and these are the tricky areas where, let's say you work with the hospital system, you get some of their patients into your gym, uh, and then you start to collect their data, and then you send that data on to the hospital, ha, now you may be a business associate of that hospital. You, you have to be careful, you know, how you um, essentially be careful what kind of data you're collecting, what are you doing with it, who are you transmitting it to, and then uh, and the tools usually will, will help you determine what kind of an entity you are and whether you're covered by HIPAA or not. How has the like, landscape of healthcare data privacy evolved in recent years? And are there sort of new challenges that have emerged as a result of you know, innovation or new types of investments in this space? There's been a tremendous uh, transformation and it's, it's mainly, you know, I it just would say started maybe with the smartphones and, and you've got technology into every little space. And then, you know, you have now dozens of companies that uh, were never medical device companies that are now doing very innovative things with their uh, technology, with that technology. And 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 uh, and then they start to collect data, even geolocation data. They they start to collect, and you know it could get implied uh, under uh, you know patient privacy and under HIPAA. Uh, so all of a sudden, you know, uh, a company that was thinking I'm just collecting location data, and now you're he uncovered under HIPAA, and that's one of the HIPAA you know so-called eighteen famous. Uh, identifiers uh, that uh, you need to now protect. So, uh, so that's where the, you know, the challenge starts uh, with um, technology has taken a leap, you know, with, uh, with the invention of the smartphone and uh, all the, you know, the cloud-based technologies that enable the smartphone to become super powerful. And now you can do a lot with it. You can you know, uh, Philips at one time used to make these ultrasound machines that used to weigh about 200 kilograms and they stood like uh, on desktop with the wheels and so on. These days, Philips just gives you the transducer, you know, the ultrasound transducer, which you can plug into something like a smartphone and all of a sudden, you know, you have a ultrasound machine in your hand, literally. And those kinds of technological leaps uh, are are now followed by collecting data and very sensitive personal data at high volume, and now uh, privacy uh, is is now much more important. Uh, it, it, in the previous case, the ultrasound machine was inside the hospital network; it was locked down, and it was inside a VPN, and it was kind of easy to protect that data. Uh, probably connected to an EMR system, but now it's connected to the cloud and that data can go anywhere. Yes, it's kind of like comparing, 
you know, 1980s computing where you're in an office, maybe you're doing something with customer records, but like the data doesn't leave the physical machine that essentially you're working on. So that is a, a much different problem from a privacy security perspective than essentially doing that at the scale of the cloud where the data is like replicated all over the place. And you have to be thinking about like constantly where, what are your, you know, ingress and egress uh, uh, places for your, your customer data and where it's flowing. And he, you mentioned this, like these challenges around some of these companies that are uh, innovating in the space. And I think one of the things that I've seen as well is that when you're regulated under something like HIPAA or even any type of regulation, you also have to be thinking about like not only the technology that you're developing, but the third-party systems that you're relying on. So if you're regulated under HIPAA and then you're collecting certain types of data, you know, and you're using HubSpot, say, for your marketing automation, well, HubSpot's not uh, HIPAA compliant. So are you putting regulated data into HubSpot without really like thinking that through? Or what are you doing from your email relay? You know, some types of email systems are HIPAA compliant and you can send HIPAA compliant emails. Other ones are not. Or, you know, text messaging, all these types of things you have to think through. What are your, your API integrations or, you know, third-party systems that you're using where you're storing some of this information? That's correct, Sean. It's not only the technological uh, linkages that you need to worry about, but all the liability that goes with it. Because if you're a covered entity, let's say, and you're using a text messaging uh, provider and they're sending your text messages for you, if they have a breach, well, you're the covered entity. You have to report that breach to HIPAA and you have to compensate those patients and uh, and potentially uh, liable to fines. So what ends up happening is a company that didn't think through these things all of a sudden uh, because of breaches that are happening uh, are now waking up to that possibility. Their insurance rates are going up through the roof um, and and uh, they're having to uh, write these ironclad contracts with their providers and enforce those contracts. So in when it comes to like the development of drugs and some other forms of care that like directly impact the patient's health, those industries are, you know, highly regulated as they should be by like the FDA. However, I think, you know, some of the things that we're talking about here is like traditionally, I think some of the security and privacy in health is not as tightly controlled or it's, you know, thought of uh, a little bit as an afterthought. You know, why is that? the case in comparison to essentially the regulations that go around, like, you know, bringing a, dr a drug to market, for example. And uh, this is uh, an excellent question. Uh, if you think about, uh, let's say, a pharma company that's manufacturing a vaccine, you know, the, the actual process where the vaccine gets made in a factory is very highly controlled uh, and it comes under the FDA, quality management systems, uh, QSR require requirements and there are European equivalents, et cetera, very highly regulated where every ingredient that goes into that vaccine, you know, it has to meet uh, electronic e-signature, part 11 compliance controlled, et cetera. Um, now for that same company, the privacy data was not, uh, you know, managed with that same, usually under that same quality management system because FDA did not govern 
that. It was more HHS and OCR that were governing the privacy of the uh, customer data or even uh, physician data that these pharma companies may have. Um, so they were kept separate. And But what's now happening is companies are getting into these uh, drug device type of combination um, and like where it could be a pharma company that's deploying a, a connected inhaler that's you know is connected to the cloud and uh, and now the drug and the device are both uh, being controlled by the company and in those cases and, and especially Europe came down very strongly with the regulations and FDA also cybersecurity requirements and privacy requirements are forcing these companies to now consider both of them uh, to be uh, under that highly regulated scheme. Maybe they don't put it in the same QMS, some do, and, and they're seeing the value of putting it into the same QMS um, uh, because uh, ultimately they are being regulated and uh, it, you, you could not keep them separate anymore once, once you go to the cloud. And now everything's like getting connected to the cloud. So you're, you're, it's not just about protecting. Now you need to always be thinking, I guess, about protecting the data because you're probably collecting it and storing it somewhere. That's correct. And, and before, you know, the pharma companies, uh, there were two areas where they would uh, have to uh, protect the data. One was in clinical trials. You know, when, they, when they ran clinical trials and they gathered the data, they usually kept it in the cloud and and then they had to uh, um, uh, manage that for, for FDA submissions requirements. And then the other area is post-market surveillance, you know, where once a drug is released into the market and there could be adverse events and severe adverse events, and then you need, as a company, you need to scan for those and you need to also report it to the FDA if you see those adverse events. And so the, that data was also kept in the cloud. Uh, but now it's, uh, like I said, the in-between, you know, something, because clinical trials are done very early, you know, before the product is ever th thought out or even uh, uh, cleared for market. Uh, and all the way to the end, post-market uh, surveillance happens after uh, an approved drug is in the market. So the in-between is also now becoming part of uh you know, coming under the regulatory uh, oversight. Historically, how are, how do like pharma and drug companies like manage and secure personal data for some of these things, like, like a trial? Are, are, is it private? Like how, how do they make sure essentially no abuse scenarios happening within the company? Is it primarily sort of like policy-based or are they using technology to help uh, control some of that? Yeah, so um, it, it has... It, Traditionally, been uh, and now I'm talking more than ten years ago. They were, you know, when they con conducted clinical trials, they would go to a hospital and enroll patients in the clinical trial, and then that data that was collected was sometimes collected even by the hospital, uh, the clinicians, the, the principal investigators in the hospitals, and then they were de-identified and given to the pharma or med device companies. So now, um, you know, because uh, the rapid pace, again, because of new product development, both device and drugs are being constantly innovated and the clinical trials, and if you go to clinicaltrials.gov, you know, that's the website where all clinical trials are registered, you see hundreds of thousands of clinical trials uh, out there. Um, and, and at that volume, 
you know, now uh, the rules have changed. So usually pharma or um, device companies may outsource it to a CRO, uh, clinical research organization, to do that work for them, you know, you know gathering that data and, and then, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, de-identifying it or, or even anonymizing it or pseudonymizing it and then giving it back. Some companies will do it by themselves, but because it's become such a specialized space, more more of them use CROs these days. But again, uh, it depends on the company. Okay, I see. And then I guess if you're you know trying to do this yourself, uh, you might not have the specialization, and it's probably going to become a bit of a a barrier to your innovation and speed of market for whatever it is that you are actually like a, a special your specialist in. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, all these companies are realizing more and more that to be a specialized in everything is very hard. So you can invent a drug, you can do the clinical work, you can, you know, come up with a, uh, a drug that now you want to test in a clinical trial, but you're usually not the expert in managing the data that comes out of a clinical trial. So why don't you give it to someone who's an expert in that? Um, and because it, you know, otherwise uh, you you incur a lot of expense and risk, and and that usually uh, doesn't pay off. You know, for a, why should a pharma company become a data company? However, you know, um, the, the, it's always a, a mix. You know, sometimes very early trials, early data, like pre preclinical, preclinical, sorry, where where you're testing on animals. You may just do it in-house because that's uh, animal data. But then once you start to go to personal data, and if you go to especially a multi-site clinical trial in, mul in multiple countries, managing that data becomes that much harder uh, to do uh, in the conventional way. Yeah, absolutely. Hey there, Sean here. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Partially Redacted. If so, please subscribe so you can always check out the latest episode and help others find the show by leaving a rating and review. Final thing before I get you back to the interview, if you're interested in privacy and security, have a challenge or issue you want to discuss, or want to share your expertise, please join the Partially Redacted community at skyflow.com slash community. All right, now back to the show. So how can companies, you know, working in uh, the healthcare space or, you know, innovating it with med devices, health tech, build like trusted transparency with, you know, the patients or the data subjects of their particular, you know, software or tool or whatever it is that they're developing. It, it starts with, uh, you know, the uh, privacy notice and what you project outside the company as to what you're going to do with the data. Now, if you go to, uh, if you enroll uh, patients in a clinical trial, there's usually about a 10 page, sometimes 20 page, uh, informed consent form that goes through everything according to the ISO standard. You know, they need to give the, you know, the purpose of the day, uh, trial, what are you going to do with the data, what are the risks to the patients, all of that. So it's very detailed and it informs the patient as to what data is going to be collected, why is it being collected, who is it being uh, sent to, and what they can do, uh, what the company is going to do with the data. The same is not true when you're talking about, let's say, a device company that, you know, let's say uh, a startup that now says, 
I'm going to measure, the, I have a beautiful new device that can measure uh, heart rate, you know, with a remote camera, for instance, and then uh, they could deploy it as an app. Uh, now, how do you uh, uh, convey to the patient the, the, again, the same type of information? Why are you collecting the data? What's your objective? What are you going to do with it? And, and do it in a way that the patient can understand. Because as you know, we get on the smartphone, we get a, a click-through agreement, which may be 20 or even 50 pages long, but no one really reads it. And, and, and that's, that's where I think uh, uh, companies can sometimes uh, um, involuntarily, uh, even uh, uh, I would say, I wouldn't use the word deceive, but they could um, not inform the patient or the uh, customer to the level that they should be doing. And that misconception, you know, uh, that misunderstanding, the patient thinks that this is being collected, but in, indeed something else is being collected and something else is happening with their data. And they find out afterward that that leads to loss of trust. I feel like in the like non-healthcare world, over the last few years, there's, from a consumer standpoint, there's more awareness of sort of your personal rights when it comes to your data and also more paranoia about how companies are you know, using or abusing your data, probably because of, I think there's, you know, been a lot more noise about that made in the, in the news and more fines doled out. Do you think that you're seeing something similar when it comes to, you know, patients in the healthcare world? Are they more sort of conscious of how somebody might be like, you know, whether it's a, you know, a med device company or something like that might be using their data and are more aware of the potential abuse that could be happen there? Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is where, you know, I, I think of the different types of patients we have over there. You know, some of the patients are, are just want to get their treatment done. And I, it, it's almost like they realize some data is being collected, but they're not so worried about it. I almost put them in that bucket of, I don't care what you do. I trust the company. Uh, they're going to do the right thing uh, kind of patients. And then at the other extreme, you have the privacy hawks. Uh, who are really worried about what uh, is going to happen with their data, what the company can do with it. And, and, and Sean, you know, the companies really, um, it, 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 it's the world of, you know, where it's a cycle. When the companies start up, they collect a whole bunch of data, then a lot of companies don't make it past CDC, ABC funding, they close. What happens to that data? And, and there is good reason for these privacy hawks to be worried because it's, many companies may not even flush the data or safely delete the data. They may, uh, you know, inadvertently release it or they may transfer it to a, a company in an M&A type of situation. So um, it, it's good reason to be worried uh, when you... you, you so, uh, but uh, having said that, uh, and, and especially in genetic testing, you know there are these, uh, uh, and I won't mention the names, but you have the uh, the more the commercial genetic testing companies that check your ancestry and help you with connecting you with, you know, maybe uh, uh, people who may be related to you or not. And, and uh, a lot of people allow their genetic data to be processed by those companies, and they don't really worry about what could be what that data could be used for other purposes. And I, uh, most recently at GeneDX, 
you know, it's the opposite where, you know, we are using the uh, genetic data to provide a uh, uh, diagnosis uh, that can be used by a physician to provide treatments. So we are, uh, we have been, you know, really very careful uh, with that data and providing the right uh, informed consent and et cetera as to what's happening with that data. So, so I think in that whole spectrum, um, both from the company side and the patient side, you have these buckets of companies that are highly regulated, they have to deal with the data in a particular way, and companies that are not that highly regulated and they can be more laissez-faire with the data and then on the patient side as well. Yeah, I really like your your point about the, you know, the company that is a startup series A, B, C or whatever that goes out of business. There's probably a lot of high, you know, um, sensitive data that's sitting in a basically unused, dead AWS database out there right now that, you know, someone's basically keeping the lights on, but it's just kind of sitting there dormant. Uh, who knows uh, where my information might be? There's, a, I think, a tricky, like, in, you know, imbalance of power somewhat in the space of healthcare because if you're a patient and you're, you know, you're sick or your child's sick or something like that, you want to trust the system, trust the people involved that they're doing everything the, you know, the right way and, and, and get better. Um, and, and you might not be, you know, you, essentially the treatment of your data is probably not the, you know, number one thing that you're thinking about. You're thinking more about the treatment of me as a person or the treatment of, you know, my family member as a person. So I think that is, uh, where things get very like complicated just from like a, you know, an ethics standpoint and, and why trust is so key for any of these companies and maintaining that trust is really, really important. So that really, in order to do that, you need to be, you know, prioritizing how you're actually, you know, not only ensuring patient safety, but protecting their data as well. So um, now, if you think of the more traditional doctor-patient type of relationship, right, a medical doctor and uh, seeing a patient, uh, in the old days, right, there were no machines, there were no uh, electronic storage, and uh, the, the, the case records were written on paper. Uh, all that has changed. The world has changed. And now there are a lot of companies in between, right? So the EMR provider, the EHR providers, the cloud company that's storing that data, and, and there are companies that transmit that data and receive. So there are a whole bunch of companies that are now involved in that simple doctor-patient relationship. And uh, so so I think from the, the doctor's perspective and the patient's perspective, it's all transparent to them, you know, but, uh, um, you know, something could go wrong in any, anywhere in that chain. And, and, and then now you may have a breach. So, so I think, you know, you're right in, in, in saying that it, the companies should take that responsibility very seriously because they, they may, like a networking company, which is just, providing the network that transmits the data from the doctor's office to the cloud may not be realizing it's sensitive patient data going through, but, uh, but they are part of that chain. Uh, and, and I think, um, you know, uh, this, this is a, an area that uh, HHS is very interested in making sure that the, the, all the companies in the chain realize that responsibility and breaches these days, a lot of them happen 
with the with those downstream uh, service providers, not necessarily with the company at the top. Yeah, and a lot of the times it's not even the main, you know, uh, storage location for for the data. It could be like a log file or something like that. It's just like unprotected or some data that someone copied into you know an S three bucket or something like that for doing some sort of analysis. It, it might not be necessarily where you naturally are thinking about the location of the data being stored. How does um, Gen AI play a role in this space? There's a lot of work going on right now uh, and with you know drug discovery companies leveraging generative AI to help discover new types of molecules. There's also companies I've heard about leveraging you know doctor's notes to train LLMs. Um, so how do you kind of think about or what are you seeing, I guess, in the, in the market when it comes to essentially the uh, uh, privacy concerns and, and regulations. Yeah. So, um, uh, and and I think uh, when when we talk about data that's used for Gen AI, there is the training data for the large language model uh, algorithms, and then there's the actual data that's used when the LLM is is deployed in a let's say a doctor's practice, right? So. Um, with the when you need think about how say Google or Microsoft or one of the uh, AI companies is having to deal with it, um, there is uh, data that belongs to the client. That could be the hospital. That is the training data. They have to keep that separate from the other data that's used to generally train the uh, the uh, LLM, uh, and uh, so. They're now talking about business associate agreements and firewalls where which allow the training data to be kept uh, separate, uh, the client training data, because it also becomes IP, right? It's the IP of the hospital and that training data that was used to train that LLM is successful for that hospital. They don't, it becomes a competitive advantage that they don't want to give it to their competitor. So they want to keep that data separate as well. So when you think about, uh, you asked, how do you think about this data? You think about the training data, you think about the production data, you think about firewalling it and having business associate agreements around it to prevent that it gets either contaminated, you know, because if, if there is, if there is a, a noise in that data, you get a noisy uh, result, then you could potentially harm patients. So this, it, you can't be, the, the data cannot be corrupted. Uh, but also it's IP. Uh, it's very valuable. Once you've trained an LLM, uh, it takes maybe uh, many, many hours and uh, uh, lots of manpower to do it. You put a lot of uh, um, money into that uh, training. So you want to protect it. So. I think uh, yeah, from a um, privacy perspective, it's not so easy. Like in the old days, you could say, here's data, let's just encrypt it, and then it's safe. Uh, but uh, in AI, it's not going to be that, right? Because data is going to be encrypted by default. Uh, it, the breach is not going to uh, be that much of a concern. But, uh, but in terms of, uh, you know, that Having that boundary, uh, virtual boundary, where a particular hospital's data is corralled and used for the purpose of that particular hospital and its patients, I think that's where we're going to see some new paradigms. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to think through from essentially the collection of what you're going to be doing for your training data. And then how do you protect that at, you know, at rest, who has access to it? How do you feed that into an LLM for training or augmenting in a way that, you know, you're not leaking sensitive data into the LLM? Uh, and then how do you control essentially access to the responses from the LLM during inference so that only the, you know, the, the right people are seeing the right types of responses based on, you know, who they are. There's a lot of new, I think, problems to try to solve and navigate here in a space that's moving very, very fast from a, a technology standpoint. That's true. And uh, the other thing that and uh, there was, a, uh, I was talking to a colleague recently about, uh, you know, one area that has been, uh, things have been success, uh, successfully deployed is natural language understanding, where, you know, doctor's notes and nurse's notes uh, are have to be, in, you know, for, you know for many purposes, from either for a pharma company, my device company, hospital, they want to digitize, you know, notes, uh, uh, free text notes. And uh, that, you would think, is a natural thing for a Gen AI, but it isn't. Why? Because, you know, the doctors use these shortcuts. They, they use these references. They use this uh, shorthand. And and it's, it's really hard for... Uh, I'm sure Gen AI will catch up eventually, but it's still uh, um, in the, the human uh, transcription of those notes is superior to the Gen AI. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And I would think too that even if you were using like a OCR scanner on a doctor's note, then you need to think about, is that OCR scanner uh, HIPAA compliant? if it's storing any of that data or processing that data and stuff, uh, which you'd also have to kind of think through because it probably, you know, an off-the-shelf OCR is probably not designed for uh, doing something as sensitive as, uh, you know, recognizing uh, a doctor's note. Well, you know, that has been a problem that's been more easily solved because it goes into a printer's scanner and then it gets scanned in and then it's converted into a PDF or whatever so that it can be encrypted and transmitted and, you know, that's that's been solved. But what's not been solved is, you know, the handwriting itself. You know, we, we all know how doctor's handwriting and notorious for being uh, not so legible or not so understandable. And how do you convert that into structured text, you know, that, that correctly? Because if you make mistakes, remember, you could harm a patient. Once you use that high standard, then it, it, you, everything that you do um, takes on a new level of complexity. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, misreading the dosage on a drug uh, that's in the handwritten could lead to really, really, you know, terrible consequences. So the, the like, Essentially, the precision and accuracy on a reader like that has to be very, very high, way above what I think what like a, a human would be capable of. That's true. And don't forget that the data entry itself could be noisy, right? Uh, a, a nurse who takes uh, blood pressure may, may put 260 over there when they really were talking about 160. And, and that, that's noisy data. And it's not the algorithm screwing up, but the data that went in is also noisy. So I think this is where um, uh, humans who are seeing that piece of data is going to say, well, someone with the 260 blood pressure should be 
you know, taken to the hospital right away. <laughs> but it doesn't seem right for this otherwise healthy person. A human doctor would immediately know that's an error. And But a machine, yeah, this is where I think uh, uh, it's going to be. Uh, and same thing we're seeing with self-driving cars, right? What seems pretty easy for a human driver is pretty hard for a self-driving Yeah, absolutely. So what are... What's the future look like for companies in the space? Like if you were advising a company today, what would your suggestions be around tackling some of the compliance and data privacy challenges? Yeah, I think uh, we, we're going to see uh, uh, you know, a lot of tools um, deployed and, and you have to be careful. And we talk about privacy enhancing technologies. We're talking about uh, you know, automated ways of looking for um, sensitive data um, and then uh, recognizing that it's sensitive data, processing it, and then preventing um, humans or machines from making mistakes and, and how to put uh, technical controls around it. And I, I, I liken this to a seatbelt, right? So I, I like the seatbelt analogy because, you know, uh, it's it's an easy to use tool that makes the occupants of the car safe. You know, if, when they buckle in, their factor of uh, magnitude more safe than when they're unbuckled. However, you know, uh, uh, firstly, people uh, in the old days would forget to wear their seat belts or purposely not wear their seat belt, and there's no way to really fix that. You know, there's no way to. Uh, confirm that they've really put the seatbelt around them and not under them. So, uh, so I think this is where technology has to come in and be more ubiquitous, and and the right technology in the right place can help to put these controls in place so that they cannot be circumvented. And I think that that's the way in which to make things safer, uh, build trust, and build transparency. Yeah, I think that's uh, really well said. And I think that there's a ton of like greenfield opportunities for people who are, you know, technology leaders to innovate in the space. Like even if you think about the data space outside of healthcare, there's so much innovation that exists around like data observability tools, companies like Monte Carlo that can essentially monitor your warehouse to make sure that the, the data is like consistent based on you know, prior, prior history of data so they can essentially self or like automatically identify flaws in the data, which made me, you know, that sounds kind of similar to some of the things you were talking about where, you know, a human doctor is going to recognize that, uh, uh, you know, blood pressure at 260 is, you know, may maybe just not the right thing. There was some sort of transcription issue. There's a lot of, I think, opportunity to leverage AI and some of the things that we've done in other areas within the health care space. Of course, the problems are much more difficult there because you're, you're, the consequences of mistakes is very, very high. But there's, I think, I feel like that's where the, the future is probably going in, the, in this world. Yeah, uh, definitely so. And, and I think uh, uh, with the advent of Gen AI, you're going to actually see more compliance people, humans, <laughs> because it may displace the, some of the technical people, right? You don't need maybe as many software developers, but I think you're going to need more people reviewing what the AI is doing and you know, your quality assurance and compliance people. I, I believe 
there's going to be a bigger market for them. Yeah, you're going to need some human in the loop uh, component to anything that you're probably doing around AI in this space. You know, as we start to to wrap up, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Any thoughts that we, or is there topics that maybe we didn't get a chance to touch on? You know, I, I think this is uh, such an open area. Like we could go on forever, Sean. It's been such a pleasant uh, conversation with you. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I, I think that uh, the thing that um, I think uh, we should always keep in focus is the patient or the customer or the, you know, the, because uh, they are not usually as up to date on, uh, you know, what technology is doing for them. And sometimes, you know, there, there are, uh, as you know, uh, uh, misconceptions and sometimes there's even uh, misinformation that is uh, generated that can uh, uh, really defeat, uh, you know, even companies that are trying to be very trusted and transparent can be uh, uh, uh that can be upended with the misinformation, uh, uh, a campaign of uh, misinformation. So I, I think uh, this is an area that where we um, in the privacy business have to 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 really um, keep that customer and explain things at the level that they understand and keep it simple, keep it transparent, and and be open and. You can't anymore have a 500-page privacy policy. <laughs> I don't think people are going to uh, put up with that. But then uh, the, the downside is that for a company that does <laughs> indulge in those kinds of practices, they just going to see their clients go away. So yeah. I think, you know, and I really sincerely believe that uh, you know, uh, technology can help, but it has to be done in a very trusted and transparent way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Marawi, thanks so much for for being here. The the pleasure's all mine. I really enjoyed this conversation. Love to have you back uh, down the road. I'm sure we can tackle another topic. Like you said, I think we could go on for a really long time uh, diving into this into this world. There's so much to talk talk about. But thanks so much for being here, and I, I learned a ton, and I think the audience will also learn a ton. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure. Cheers.